0: Thank you so much for loving the lost, loving his church, Amen. and just loving God. Amen. And with that, I give you Dr. Jennifer Conant.
1: You know, I I do get the opportunity. Some of you, many of you, have already heard some stuff I've been teaching, and um, but I tell you, I think this is my favorite room to be Amen. in. I'm serious. I was sitting there going. These are my friends. I mean, we've known each other many of us here for a really long time, right? And so, what a joy to be able to come and share today. We do want you to walk out, you know, with some practicals. I do have the joy of being able to work in a field that's highly needed, right? Like many of the fields you work in, and it does bring up a lot of the pain that is in our lives, both our individual lives, or those in our family, or those in our ministries, and so um, we are going to talk about mental health, and suicide, and grief, and I have, I just, apologizing ahead of time, I don't follow the rules, I have way too many slides, and I'm going to work through them rather quickly, so I'm just apologizing ahead of time, you can, and I really want you to, send me an email at jenniferconson at yahoo.com, and I will respond with the slides. Okay. Um, so just know that you can keep that information for so on but also I'm going to be covering in one hour what I would usually take a whole semester to teach right so just so you know we did record a bunch uh, John Oates did some classes on mental health here so who was in those classes okay so you're gonna get a little bit of a repeat at the first third of today the last two thirds were not in it but Um, So, they're on a number of different topics and much more uh, extensive than what we're going to cover today on some of them. So just the overall historical background to to, uh, psychology and a disciples' faithful approach, and then understanding mental health throughout the, the years. So what does that mean from childhood to, in other words, diagnoses. For all of that age span. And then we definitely spent some time talking about anxiety and depression. We're going to talk about that today and suicidality. We're going to talk about that a little bit more today than we did during the classes. And then we talked about sex and drugs. It's so funny. That was, that was the most favorite class from many, the sex and drugs class. And we're not going to talk about that at all today. Um, and then, of course, what are some practicals on how do you, who do you see? So you can go on to John Oaks' website and you can listen to all of those, all right, so just so you know. And um, this is just a really funny cartoon. If you all know it, we're, I don't know if you can see it, it's really small, right? Lucy, it says psychiatric help five cents. And then it says at the end here, um, she says snap out of it, please. Five cents, you know? <laughs> so <laughs> that's hopefully not how I treat my clients when they come into my room, snap out of it, and then give me the five cents. I do wanna just let you know, because for some of us, we have a background, and I, I share that background, to where we have a lot of negative feelings about therapy, about psychology. I actually, I wanted to become, you know, I love discipling, and I love helping couples. So Tim and I talked about it and decided I'm going to go back to school and get a master's and become a counselor. So I go into my meeting um, and, uh, for at, the, at Alliance, and I find out that I have to go to a meeting for the psychology department. And I was like, why do I have to go to a meeting for the psychology department? I just want to become a counselor. I didn't know you had to get a psychology degree. That's how clueless I was to become a counselor. And I was like, I don't believe in psychology, I was like, What? So, I had, you know, like most of us, I had taken an intro class in college, and everything about that class, I was like, Pfft. You know, um, <laughs> everything Freudian and Jungian, I was just like, What? i uh, give me the Bible. And so, um, it took me, uh, I, you know, I had to get a master's and then a doctorate in psychology, something I was like I don't know if I even believe in this stuff. In order to do the work I wanted to do, and so really I had to spend all of those years and still do learning, uh, discerning how I could use this tool to be of benefit to my brothers and sisters. Amen making sure that it's all biblically grounded. So I get it. If there is anything in you that goes I totally get that on the realm of psychology. I do think we need to, just like we would go to a medical doctor, we can go to people with um, psychological backgrounds and get the help that we need, right? So I I hope you can learn some of that today. Um, But those are some of my objections. Um, There are a lot of scriptures On mental health. I'm just going to tap on a few. It's kind of surprising. And I actually can barely see that screen. So let's let's pray I can read it. Um, And you probably can barely see it. In uh, 1 Samuel 16, the Lord's spirit had left Saul and an evil spirit from the Lord had tormented him. I'm turning around. Because I cannot read it. Um, When the evil spirit from God comes to you, he'll strum a tune and you'll feel better. And whenever God's spirit came to Saul, David took the lyre and strummed a tune. And Saul got relief from his terror and felt better. And this spirit left him. Okay, a lot of times people say, I'm not sure. Is this a mental health issue? Or am I demon-possessed? And all of us who have children have wondered that about our kids. You know? <laughs> um, the reality is, sometimes it's a little hard to tell. Is this a spiritual issue? Is this a mental health issue? Um, but I think Saul is a good example of a very, very possible mental health and spiritual issue. Then we look at um, David. This is so interesting. The word insanity is in the Bible several times. So he pretended to be insane in their presence and while he was in their hands he acted like a madman making marks on the doors of the gate and letting saliva run down his beard. So David, oh thank you that helps me a lot. David acted like a madman in order to keep himself actually from getting killed. So obviously the idea of insanity was already around because even look at he even knew how to act it out. You know, am I in the right scripture there? Yeah. Okay, ah, there we go. I'm going to have to push twice. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven away from the people and ate grass like an ox. His body was drenched with dew of heaven until his hair grew, I don't know, some of us, wow, right? They we grew like feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes from heaven and my sanity was restored. So again, it's talked about super early on. Jeremiah says, cursed be the day. And here we see... We go from the idea of insanity, and we're looking at grief and trouble and sorrow. And he says, why did I ever come out of the womb to see trouble and sorrow and to end my days in shame? You know, really talking openly and honestly about sorrow and shame, which we're going to do today, is vital to the process of working through mental health issues. And then we have the perfect example, the demoniac, right, who was possessed. We know that because it literally says it. He lived in tombs, and though he was chained hand and foot and kept under guard... He broke his chains, he was driven by a demon into solitary places. Again, we have this crossover between what looks like today we would call some pretty serious mental health issues and definitely demon possession. And then we have our Lord, and this is what it says. I don't think he had mental health issues. I'm just saying, though, that when his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said he is out of his mind. So his family had concerns that he had mental health issues. So these questions have been around literally thousands of years. And we need to figure out how to help people when they actually are having issues with their mind, with their psyche. Um, that's in Mark 3. What are some other ones? Well, <clears throat> in Deuteronomy, it says, oh, there we go. The Lord will afflict you with madness. Okay, this, so this is actually God using insanity uh, as, a, as a punishment. Blindness and mental confusion. The sights you see will drive you mad. The Lord will give you an anxious mind, eyes weary with longing and despairing heart. You will live in constant suspense, filled with dread both night and day, and never sure of your life. Now, I don't ever recommend you would use the scripture to try to say to another disciple, maybe God's punishing you and that's why you're having these challenges. That would be a really, really bad idea. I'm just saying, these are very real things that happen in people's lives. And then of course, Isaiah says, um, talks about the level of grief that he felt. And then Jonah says, and this, boy, this could be out of the words of many that come into my office. I sank beneath the waves and the water closed over me. Seaweed wrapped itself around my head. My life was slipping away. This is him actually literally being swallowed by a whale. But often these are the kinds of words, these despairing words that are used by people who are feeling these things emotionally, that are going through some of these challenges. And then, of course, in Peter, what are we supposed to do? To cast all our anxiety on him. The word anxiety is all over the mental health literature right now. Well, it's actually all over the scriptures as well. So definitely, Second Corinthians talks about taking every thought captive. So we, we have training in the Bible, a lot of training in the Bible about our minds and our thoughts, that doesn't necessarily mean the captive part's easy. I actually did a whole several days just studying that phrase right there. Uh, how do we? What does that phrase mean and how do we take our thoughts captive? Because a lot of times we, we hear from people you just need to think differently. I don't think that's actually what that scripture is talking about. That's a whole separate lesson. But um okay, what are some of the definitions? What is psychology? What is psychopathology? Psychology is literally <clears throat> the study of the soul. Oh, okay, who should be the experts at that? Right, everybody in this room, right? We are all psychologists. There you go, but just don't claim that, you'll get in trouble. Um, <laughs> with, the, with the California board. But I love this next one. This is psychopathology, which is the suffering of the soul. So this is the the whole book that I use to help people. It's called the DSM, and it's a book on psychopathology. And that is what is so challenging for people, is the suffering that they're going through in their souls. So how do we help people? Look at Jesus here, right? He felt that. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. You know, whatever name we give it, whether we give it a name for a diagnosis or not, God relates to the pain that we feel.
2: Yeah.
1: He relates to the suffering of the soul. And we need to learn how to relate to people's suffering. Um, or you need people able to relate to your suffering. That's what genuine empathy is really about. So what is God's heart? What are the words of Jesus? Uh, right? This is the prophecy that of Jesus speaking here. Isaiah 61 He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners. That's, again, the heart of God and the heart of Jesus about mental health. So if I could start with anything right now, it's this this reminder. It's in the Bible, all of the things that we're going to be talking about today as far as mental health, challenges, and suffering. And that God's response to that is that he wants to set us free. All right? So... This is the book I use, just letting you know it's called the DSM 5. I'm going to just show you what the different diagnoses are. They are neurodevelopmental disorders. They are, these are the different chunks in the book. The book is about this thick. Uh, psychotic disorders, mood disorders, obsessive-compulsive disorders, trauma and stressor, and disruptive impulse and conduct. And then substance abuse, personality disorders, sleeping disorders. Uh, eating disorders, sexual disorders, and neurocognitive disorders. So it's a pretty big book, right? (laughs) It covers a lot of suffering. When you get a master's or a doctorate in psychology, this is literally, they call it the Bible of psychology. And let me tell you, the Bible works a heck of a lot better. But the reality is it's got some really useful information in it. And these ideas, though, of diagnoses can be super negative when we put a name on it, a label on it. Sometimes frees people. It sometimes gets their work, the going and seeing a therapist covered by their insurance. Um, but sometimes it actually makes people feel negative, like it's a negative about them that they have this word attached to them, whether it's the word depression or so on. But I just wanted to show you what some of the stuff is. I, I love this, you can't really see this very well, but what it says at the bottom is, shut off your cell phone, GPS, iPod, and Bluetooth, headset," And then let me know if you still hear the voices. <laughs> My kids actually asked me, do you have a couch in your office? And yes, I do, but very rarely do people lay on it unless they have a back problem. So, um, all right, we just need to remember When it comes to the challenges people have with mental health, we're going to talk about suicide, and with grief, God grieves when we grieve. You know, in all their affliction, he was afflicted. Surely he has borne our grief, and his soul was grieved for the misery of Israel. Um, I know that personally, in becoming a therapist, I had to grow in this, my ability to sorrow with other people's sorrow my ability to have compassion it honestly is still a growing thing because obviously our goal is to be like jesus to have the heart of god this is the heart of god in regards to grief and we're going to be talking a little bit more about grief people though don't always respond that way or feel that way about their own mental health challenges you know, one of the biggest things that people feel is a real shame about talking. If, they, if, they're, if they're coming to you and they're, they're expressing that they have challenges with depression or with anxiety, especially depression, you know, how could you be a disciple and feel depressed, right? And so there's a lot of shame that they're already feeling before they come and talk to you. And it's vital that we understand that. Now, not always, but in today's society, that's often how people feel. They feel a lot of guilt. I have literally heard these words, if I tell people what I have, then people are gonna see me this way from now on. They're gonna they are going to have this label of me from now on. So, again, when people come to you, you need to be aware of just their own feelings of, uh, their own perceptions of their own challenges. This, this, I always get asked this a lot, am I crazy? Uh, like, probably every week somebody says, so doctor? And they come in for their assessment, am I crazy? You know? I'm like, well, <laughs> hmm, there's a lot of different answers to that question. That question comes from a lot of pain. That question comes from a lot of fear, right? Um, also, one of the things that we really blow in, the, in, in our family sometimes is a lack of confidentiality when people do come or when you do see their challenges. We need to guard people's confidentiality when it comes to their mental health. You know, it says in Proverbs 11:13 that a gossip betrays a confidence, and sometimes in the guise of I'm getting advice, we'll go and we'll share things, but this person who just shared bared their soul to you doesn't want other people knowing yet. They're not there yet. They're not ready. And so it's really vital. So we have laws. When you're a therapist, you have laws around what you're allowed to say. I actually can't talk to you. If some of you approached me and said, hey, Jennifer, I'd like to talk to you about so-and-so, you know, I know that they're seeing you. My exact answer, if any of you know this, I've said it to some of you, is I cannot confirm or deny if I know who you're speaking about. I have laws that say I can't talk to anybody else when someone comes to see me. I think we could probably use some of those laws on our tongue, keep a, keep a, uh, uh, you know, let's uh, uh, say uh, Psalm 141, you know, to keep a vice over our tongue, right? We need to really make sure that before we go and talk about someone else's mental health challenges to get advice, you ask their permission. Say, hey, and I would like to, can I, can I share these things? Tell them what you're gonna say. You're gonna build a lot more trust when you let them know ahead of time, and then you do not go and talk about those things, unless, again, if they're in danger, that's a little different, we don't have time to talk about that. But they're, just make sure that you're, you're honoring their confidences, that you're not betraying their confidences when they come to you. And then make sure that you're someone that they can trust. So this is a room full of leaders. We need to make sure that the response that we give them builds trust between us, because one of the biggest things that comes up is your, your folks or you come into my office and they feel like when they've shared stuff that it gets dismissed. And it just amplifies the pain tremendously that they're the suffering of their soul that they're already going through. So it's vital that we get help. I don't know about you, but I know that I have been through the years pretty dismissive around mental health. And many of us have been. And it's just vital that we check our own convictions so that we don't end up harming the very people coming to us and sharing their pain. Okay, what are some of those questions, those mistakes that we can make? We can practice outside of our scope of competence, which means, well, <laughs> that might mean quite a few things. Uh, sometimes you feel like you're the one that's supposed to take care of all of their needs, but if you don't have that competence, then let someone else take care of those needs. So we, we don't want to be doing that. Um, we often will say things like, you know, all you need is the Bible. I, I have to say, it's been said from our own pulpits. I don't even remember who, but from our own pulpits that if you're a disciple, then you don't need mental health care. You don't need to see a therapist. You don't need to see a counselor. You don't need to be on medication. And now, you know, and not too long ago. So we just need to be aware that these kinds of things, some of you are saying it. In when someone comes to you And you're like well let's just read these scriptures And it's true they do need the scriptures But you don't want to dismiss the fact That they might need a, a lot of other Care as well on top Of that so the, all you need is the Bible is a, is a big one um, There we go If you're strong spiritually you should Not need now this is what my clients Say to me this is how they Feel That If I was strong spiritually I wouldn't need To come see you Jennifer so this is how they're viewing themselves. We've got to make sure we're not adding to that message. Yeah, if you were strong, you wouldn't, right? we got to make sure. the cycling is always enough. And some of you are like, no, there's no way I could cover some of the stuff that people bring up. But other times, we tend to think that. I, I often will have, this is when I'm doing couples work, where um, one will want to go and see somebody professionally, and their spouse will say, "Why do we need to do that? We already have discipling, and discipling is enough." Well, maybe it is, but for some people, they need some extra care, and so we just need to be careful, even within our marriages, even within our families, not to dismiss the need for extra care. And then another big one is that we do swing as a family back and forth. That. You shouldn't do, you shouldn't seek help, you shouldn't do medication, you shouldn't go see a therapist, and then we swing the other direction. Medication is always okay, and therapy is always, need, you know, we go back and forth, and we have to have a little more nuanced response. All right? We need to be careful. These are literal words. I'm, I'm literally putting down words that have been heard in the fellowship. You're just make, about depression, you're just making excuses, like when they don't come to service, when they, when they don't feel like they can engage in certain things. You're just making excuses. You're such a party pooper. Those have been said in the ministries. Uh, about anxiety, the words are, you just need to calm down. That's a big one. You just need to chill. And it's not that big a deal. Now, these might have been words. I might, be, You might be sinking in your seat going, shoot, I've said these things. Well, amen. Yep. Repentance brings refreshment, right? <laughs> Acts 3.19. Uh, judgment about suicide. Uh, people have said that you're just looking for attention. Or I think, or they'll say it about someone else, to someone else. They're just looking for attention. They're just being manipulative, and they have a history of this. And so we dismiss it. And actually, in the field of therapy, That's just a big, big, big no-no, is that anytime someone makes a suicidal gesture, you act as if it is fully true because you don't know when it is or it isn't. And so, are people manipulative? Sure. Do people have a history of this? Sure. But to dismiss what they're doing can be quite dangerous for them and for the family because it affects the people that are hearing you say that, even if you don't say it to them directly. We do have this idea, this is out of the Shapiro's book, that if somebody struggles in their past with distrust, guilt, anger, hurt, low self-esteem, sadness, anxiety, depression, fear, suicidal thoughts, that they will all just magically disappear and they become a disciple. It'll just magically get better. That, you know, all you need to do is repent. You just need to get over it and you need to move on, right? And just forgive everybody. And all of those things that you dealt with in your past with your parents and your family and your, your previous marriage and all of the trauma that you went through, it'll all just be gone magically. The baptism, the, the, the waters of baptism just wipe it all away. That would be great. However, the Bible doesn't teach that. It says it wipes away our sins, right? But that that, that pain and those challenges can still very much be alive. And so we've just got to be aware that we can give pretty pat answers sometimes. Cliches, trite explanations, challenges that are... Not really well-based. So be aware. Instead, I love this. This is straight out of Shapiro's book. They talk about how sometimes we think that becoming a disciple is a vaccination (laughs) against disorders of mental health. Wouldn't that be great? Doesn't quite work that way, right? Um, If I'm a better disciple, if I prayed harder, if I had better quiet times, I'd be better. But we know that in John 9-3... That when, he said, when they said to Jesus, you know, was this man born blind because of his sin or his parents' sin, that this difficulty this man had had nothing to do with sin. And that's often the case with mental health. Now, it is challenging because sin overlaps with it, right? So you have to pray for great discernment to figure out. And so pray for great discernment. But we've got to be really careful from saying it's just sin. All right. Ah, this is lovely. (laughs) Yeah, when Asa says, though his disease was severe, even in his illness, he did not seek help from the Lord, but only from the physicians. So this is the other side of the danger, right? Where we would only go and only listen to a medical professional or a mental health professional. We need all of it. They're all tools. Obviously, the Bible and the Holy Spirit is the tool. Jesus is the answer. The Bible is the answer, right? We do have to be aware of, discounting all of mental health and all that it can bring. But at the same time, we have to make sure that we're not putting all of our things in one basket, which would be in the therapist's basket. Because, boy, if everybody did that to me, I'd be in trouble. Um, Again, the Shapiros, even the disciple who suffers from one of these biologically-based psychiatric disorders is not absolved from the responsibility of putting his or her challenge into spiritual context and learning to stay faithful to God. How do we have these mental health challenges and live them out faithfully as a disciple? So I highly recommend, um, I'm going to ask here, who has read the Shapiro's Rejoice Always? Excellent. Everybody else, raise your hands. I would like you all to go buy it. All you have to do is go on IPI. And purchase it. It's cheap. It's electronic. It's the only way you can get it right now. Buy it and read it. It's a. It's like this big. It's really small. But it, they do a great job covering some basic things on how to help people in your ministries. Right? And how to really change your own perspective. You know Guy Hammond's book, right? It's about this big and it's life-changing. I've read it too many times to count. It's like that. It's this very helpful, very practical. Go ahead and get it. All right. What can you do? We're going to get into some... Real specifics on um, anxiety, depression, suicide, and grief. But overall, what can you do to support them? Remember Proverbs 20, verse 5. The purposes of a man's heart are deep waters. And a man of understanding draws them out. Ask questions. When people come to you with that sorrow, with that suffering of the soul, ask questions. I I mean, we have the perfect example in Jesus. Um, We're going to, like I said, talk about grief. And here's Jesus' response to grief. He sees the widow of Nain go by. And it says that his heart was moved. His heart went out to her. Actually, in the Greek, it means his guts were moved, right? So this is what empathy means. The greatest thing that your brothers and sisters need, and honestly, that some of you need, because these are some of your challenges, is you're needing the... Empathetic response from the other And those who come to you are needing That response from you the Empathy so let's right Uh, Following Jesus is the answer Well there we go we could all go home right now (laughs) Literally and just think How would Jesus respond and that's how I want to respond we do know From Isaiah 42 a bruised Reed he will not break a smoldering Wick he will not snuff out Each man Will be like a shelter from the storm That's our job as leaders. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort who comforts us in all of our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received Amen. from God.
2: Amen.
1: That I mean, each of us I, I we were just in Sweden and And I'm meeting my brothers and sisters in Sweden. It was like, it's like the coolest thing in the world. We're like on a whole other side of the world. And we get it. We've studied the Bible. And we've become disciples. And we understand the cross and repentance. And there's this immediate, you've never met them before. But you're immediately connected, right? And that's how it is, guys. We've all been given this amazing comfort from God. We need to make sure that's what we're offering people when we're going through these different challenges. So... Specifically, when someone comes to you, give them their support when it comes to them seeing somebody. Either in giving them referrals, do you even know who you would refer them to? Do you have referrals? Do you know ways that they can call? We're t- Some of those are actually are, uh, on the handout that you have. Do they have a support network? So this is the first thing I check when people come in is how's their support network? How many close relationships do they have? How open and who do they feel like they can trust? That's huge. Are they in a small group? Because um, even in the field of mental health, one of the first things that you're gonna look at is are they in community? So yes, uh, requiring small groups is a good idea even uh, for those who aren't even spiritually inclined. Um, Again, the referral to professionals. And then one of the things that I love, if I can have somebody in the office with me, meaning Um, I've got a client with me, and they'll bring in their support relationships. So that would be one of you. We do a signed release, and they come in, and they join the session. And I'm I'm broadening even the way that I can then help that person by involving their other support relationships. Now, a lot of professionals don't do this, actually, which is unfortunate. They should. Um, That's one thing that's vital. You can affirm and support them and their need for help. And this is another big one. We tend to think of psychology as an individual issue. But often it is not. It's often impacting everybody or it's impacted by everybody in their family and in their close relationships. So if some, if if, if, an, if a, a wife is having a challenge, I'm like, bring the husband into therapy. If a child is having a challenge, bring the parents into therapy. If the parent's having a challenge, bring the kids in. I mean, as much... Family support, and well, you have to, unfortunately, you have to see somebody that knows how to do family therapy, and that's important. But having all family members involved in some fashion is one of the best ways to actually have success with therapy. So just a little plus there. And when it comes to loss and depression, especially with, uh, uh, if someone has been lost to suicide, uh, the needs ricochet throughout the family. And so getting extra support, even if it's not professional support, getting extra support of some kind is vital. So what's your job, right? Help them with their spiritual walk. Yes. Find ways to be in the Word. And that might mean that they can't have a typical quiet time. If they're in a major depressive episode, which we're going to talk about in a minute, they might not be able to do a typical quiet time. They might only be able to listen to some scriptures. Um, So help them with how to pray, that maybe they can't pray uh, and so they need someone to come pray with them. So find ways to help people when they're in the midst of uh, anxiety disorders and in the midst of a major depressive disorder and in the midst of some of those challenges. Also help them with their fellowship. Sometimes when people are in the midst of um, an episode of some kind in regards to anxiety and depression, I'll say, you know, you might not be able to stay at the whole service, but you can get dressed. Uh, With depression, one of the things in the whole field of psychology, one of the things you'll say with depression is you do need to get moving, and you need to get around people. And so we help people with that, right? So we have the perfect forum to do that, especially if it's a supportive forum. And so sometimes I'll tell people, "What, what can you do? Can you put on your shoes? Great. Let's put on your shoes. Okay. Can you get dressed? Okay. Let's get dressed. Can you get your keys, get in the car, or do you need somebody to pick you up? Okay, how long, Let's, how about you stay for 15 minutes and then you go home? So it might be something small on getting them involved in the fellowship, but we just have to be careful for saying this is what you have to do and work with them to find out how you can help them through this episode. I mean, if they were having, if they had lupus and they had a flare-up with lupus, you would bring the Lord's Supper to them. You would find brothers and sisters to call them and come serve them and make dinners, right? And that's the kind of support that we need to provide when people are in a really challenging place. And then, yes, you still need discipleship. <laughs> and so I tell people, if you're discipling somebody with some of these challenges, go buy this book with the Shapiros together and read it together. And then do discipling that way. You know, because there's tons of scriptures in there, and it's also very helpful for mental health. So there are, you, you still need to be obedient to the scriptures as a disciple, but you're going to have to adjust it when you're in the middle of some of these challenges. And then definitely, uh, like I said, collaboration with therapists, if you can do that. But this is the other big way you can help, is prevention. So this is, with especially with depression, um, exercise, hobbies, nutrition, open disciplinary relationships are huge. That doesn't mean you say this is what you need to do. It means you have, remember, uh, the purposes of a man's heart are deep waters, and a man of understanding draws them out, right? So this is being in collaboration with them. Luis and I were just talking a minute ago about Stand beside them, do it alongside with them. Um, you're not their therapist, but you can help them with all of the things that will get them to, that can help them get to a better place. So, and of course, I, this is the number one thing. Um, I right now have um, about five different women who are seeing me that have, and they are all women right now, but it isn't just a female challenge with OCD. And with all of them, their understanding of God is very challenged because of the negative view that they have of themselves. Um, and so this is the, I mean, even as a therapist, I work in a Christian counseling office. It's really lovely. I can use all the tools. And so the, one of the biggest things I work on is who is he? How, how's your? How are you feeling about the character of God and how well you know his character, how he feels about you, and how does he see you? So... This is something each of you can do, right? And that's vital to someone's process of recovery from whatever it is they're challenged by. These are some things to avoid. You don't need to diagnose them. Aren't you glad about that? Don't avoid them. I, you know, I'm sorry, but yes, there are times, right, where each of us in the fellowship go, (sighs) when we see somebody coming our way and we know that the amount of needs that they have are huge, And so you may be a little burnt out yourself, and you may need to get somebody else in there to help with that individual, but it is vital that we we really pay attention to the desire to avoid some of the issues. And then definitely, I've already gone through some of the blaming statements and the shaming. Okay, One one quick plug here. One of the single biggest things that comes up when I am working with all of mental health is challenges around sexuality. It comes up with, and it's not just because I'm a sex therapist, it comes up with everybody that walks in my door. We need, and again, today isn't even to discuss this, but we need to make sure that we're really well grounded in how we feel and think about sexuality and how we're drawing them out. Because challenges around the guilt that they feel, around things they that have been done to them, the pain and the agony they feel about things that have been done to them, the guilt that they feel about things they've engaged in, the damage that's happened in their current relationships, or the challenges they're having with pornography and the level of guilt that they're feeling about that. We need to learn to draw those things out. Um, I did bring this up just to show you. We are—we do have these out afterwards if you want to buy them. This is our book, Redeemed Sexuality. We need to really learn a new approach to sexuality because let me tell you, if we could be grounded well sexually, it would make a huge difference with all the things that we're gonna talk about today. Okay, specifically when it comes to depression and anxiety, it's important to know what people are experiencing. Um, One of the things we don't talk a lot about in the church is social anxiety. And there are individuals in your groups that have social anxiety, and it, um, it goes pretty untreated in our, in our um, culture. And that is that they come to church, and they're supposed to love church, but actually every time they approach this group of people, they get overwhelmed with anxious feelings. And it's really hard for them to be in the fellowship. And, and they've never talked about it. They feel guilty about it. They've maybe never even told you. Social anxiety is very, very challenging, So if someone is dealing with that, again, they may need some extra help with what to do. They might not be able to stay in the, you know, the the service is over and maybe they need to fellowship outside with people. So there's adjustments that can be made. Or maybe they only stay for a few minutes. Or maybe they only fellowship in smaller groups. They go home and then they they fellowship in their small groups. So helping people with social anxiety is huge. And then definitely panic disorder is another anxiety disorder and generalized anxiety disorder, and obsessive compulsive disorder. With all of these, these are, I would say, a good chunk of everybody that comes into my office is dealing, all of us are dealing with differing levels of anxiety. Mm -hmm. This is the thing that's important about that, is that when people are dealing with these symptoms, the level of agony and anguish that they're experiencing is huge. And if you don't ask about it, you wouldn't even know. So that's where the the purposes of a man's heart are deep waters, and a man of understanding draws them out. I'm not even going to go over these. You can look at these slides. There's a, look at that. That's all the list of what causes anxiety, and all of you could go, yup, on that one. These are the mood disorders, major depressive disorder. Um, and, um, let me just explain what an episode is. There we go. A major depressive episode is when somebody goes through that period of where they cannot they'll spend a certain number of time, it's got a time limit on it, on which they cannot get out of bed, The motivation is super low, they're not eating, they're not sleeping, um, all of the depressive symptoms over a certain period of time. And when someone has a depressive episode, and then they have that low gray cloud that hangs over their head, it's called major depressive disorder. If they don't have a depressive episode, but they have the low gray cloud, that's got a different name that I'm going to show you in a minute. It's actually this one, persistent depressive disorder. And the the Shapiros call this the disciple killer. It doesn't have the big old major lows can't get out of bed because this is the person that plows through and they come to everything and they serve and they give. And that low gray cloud has never left them. It's super debilitating and it's over decades that your brothers and sisters have shared. Uh, that's what they've been experiencing for decades. So it's important. This is this is the tough one because it's not as obvious. Um, it doesn't have these debilitating. They're still functioning. They're still going to work. They're still in Bible studies. But this low gray cloud is literally sucking the life out. Uh, premenstrual dysphoric disorder. And let me show you a lovely picture of that. There we go. Right. <laughs> and, of course, this would be the... Persistent depressive disorder for you um, And then what I jumped past was, there we go, bipolar. All right? And again, these are not, we're not gonna spend the whole day on these, we could. Um, but the level of fear people feel about these disorders, the level of hopelessness and despair that come along with them is, is huge, okay? So. What are some of the causes? There's a lot of different causes. Depression is at the root, I'm gonna spend a little bit on it because it's at the root of um, some of the challenges with suicide. The challenges is that anxiety and depression are really good friends. I always talk about how they're two sides of the same coin. Which by the way, in case your brains are like about to split right now, we're gonna have about 30 minutes of questions in about 20 minutes, 25 minutes, okay? So write down your questions. Um, We're gonna have some good time to answer them. It's vital to understand that depression and anxiety uh, go hand in hand most of the time. In fact, it's actually kind of rare that I'm not dealing with somebody that's not expressing both. Um, So anxiety can actually cause depression. If there's been a loss and the grief is still there from either a friend or a close family member, or if they've lost a relationship. People can go through loss when um, someone's moved, or through a divorce, or through a child leaving, um, You know, even going away to college. Trauma can, is absolutely associated with depression. So if someone has a background in physical or sexual trauma, and if there's been any kind of tragedy that they've gone through, it's very associated in the literature with depression. And then definitely if someone has, this is a big one, is the low view of self. And that is why the who God is and how he feels about us is huge when dealing with depression. And this is a big one. Body image is very associated with depression, and it is not just for women. We were just in, um, in Sweden, and one of the things that came up is that the, the actual, because they're very focused on fitness, and so uh, the body image issue is pretty big in Sweden, and there, it's the, Sweden has the highest rate of anorexia among men. Right. So it's not just a female thing, the body image. I actually work with men quite a bit around body image. Um, and then definitely, if someone is not having a lot of hope and their, their disappointments are high, if they're anxious about the future, um, hormones are definitely related to depression. That's why the um, dysphoric disorder, the menstrual dysphoric disorder. And then medications can actually cause depressive symptoms. So it's important that you talk about that, like what medications are you're on, because they can be associated with it. Absolutely all drug and alcohol use can be, they're, they're most drugs and alcohol, not all of them, about half and half are depressants. So marijuana and alcohol is a depressant. All right, so what, when someone's dealing with depression, often, yes, you'll have an association with, what, with self-destructive behavior. So this would be cutting, and suicidal ideation, other damaging, uh, eating disorders are actually associated with depression. And it'll cause problems on the job and at school. It'll cause difficulty with conflicts because irritability is higher with depression. People don't actually realize that that somebody will act like um, they are, let me go on to this next one. Oh, shoot, I don't have it in here. Um, that they'll act like they're irritated all the time with people, and we don't think of that as depression. It actually, one of the symptoms of depression is irritability. So, yeah, I know, oh boy. Um, yes, there's a big loss of motivation that's an effect of having depression and dealing with depression, and it can be in all kinds of areas, in the sexual relationship as well as in uh, their entire lives. And then there is a strong loss of pleasure. So those who come into my office are often expressing that the things I used to like to do, I'm no longer enjoying. Um, I'm no, I, these are my best friends, and I'm not really looking forward to getting with them, and that's huge, especially for disciples. <laughs> Sometimes this is what depression looks like. He says, I don't know. I guess I just don't believe in myself anymore. You know, poor bunny rabbit. Um, So, all right, how does this, one of the things that's important about suicide is we need to understand how it's connected to depression. We tend to think it's always connected to depression. It's not. One of the things we know is that about 15 to 20% of those with depression attempt suicide. But then the next stat's really important. 90% of those who have committed suicide were dealing with depression. So depression doesn't... And what happens is when I'm working with parents and adolescents is the parent becomes very fearful when their child is depressed. I can't... That just comes in my... I I worked in schools as a school therapist, and this came up a lot where parents would become very anxious when they would see their child in in a depressive state for fear that that would mean that they're... Because suicidal ideation does often come along with it. However, it's not an absolute. Depression can be without suicidal ideation, However, for those who actually attempt suicide, the percentage of depression is about 90%, so it's very high. Um, Yeah, when we talked about that, suicide attempts are just trying to get attention, not not a great way to think about it. I do appreciate the idea that if we're talking more openly, we do have a show that just came out on Friday. Um, It's the second of um, 13 Reasons Why. And um, I believe John Gore. I'm not sure. who I believe Guillermo has um, some some uh, materials to help talk with kids about it if they end up watching it. Because sometimes they watch it even when you aren't aware of it, or it's something that you end up watching together. It's important to find ways to talk openly, and then but not then cause challenges with. And that's a really difficult balance because there is so much shame and stigma around so much shame and stigma around suicide and suicidal attempts. We um, can make all kinds of judgmental statements about somebody that's either attempted or actually has completed a suicide. And it's really sometimes a complete lack of understanding of the level of challenges that this person had beforehand and then the level of impact that it has on the rest of the family. Again, we, we have to be able to talk openly and honestly about this, and yet not bombard people who are challenged by it. It's a very, very difficult balance to figure that out. Um, So those are some of the facts around Suicide Alley, but I wanted to show you this. You can barely read it, right? Um, The high-risk populations, uh, veterans, middle-aged men. Look at this, the second line says, older adults over 65, we tend to think it's just a teenage thing. Actually, the highest number of um, completed suicides is over 60. Uh, recently divorced, history of substance abuse. So if someone has a background of substance abuse, which is why the 65 and older is higher. Um, if they have any history of sexual abuse, background in foster care, this is just from the, from the research on suicide. If there's been any kind of a previous suicide attempt, if they have a chronic mental health disorder or any physical health issues. So it's just important to know it ups the risk. So let's look at one of the pages I gave you. <clears throat> If you look at the very back of it, all right, this is what you would call a suicide risk assessment. um, This is actually what I use when I'm trying to discern how how much in danger someone is. And you'll see that there's a lower risk, a medium risk, and a higher risk. And it has to do with these different categories. You can take some time to go and look at this um, in more detail. But if they're talking to you about it, and I'm actually going to give you some language to talk with people about. If they're talking about it and it's pretty vague, they don't have a specific plan, um, that would be a lower risk. If they have some specifics, that would put them at a medium risk. So just, I'm just covering the first line on top. If they actually have a specific plan, that puts them at high risk. And that's when you would call and get... If someone's at a high risk, if they're in my office, then I would call, meaning they are in imminent danger of committing suicide, then I would actually call and, well, first I would try to get them into a facility voluntarily. If they don't go voluntarily, it might be what you would call a PERT team. It's, it's a part of the police force. And um, they would come and do an assessment to discern if that person needs to actually be involuntarily brought into the hospital to keep them safe for what you call a 72-hour hold. So um, it's important that we understand that how, like if someone says uh, the the lethality of how they're thinking of committing suicide changes the level of risk, um, pills versus knives versus guns, guns being the highest lethality, um, pills being the lowest. Um, If their pain, if they talk about their physical pain, if it's bearable, this is the second section on the top, versus if the pain is unbearable, right? It changes the level of risk. So utilize this. This is just a tool, but if you're wondering, I'm not sure if I'm supposed to call and get help, then call and get advice when someone's talking to you. Like, is this somebody that I need to break their confidence and talk to somebody to keep them safe? That's a really good question, because keeping people safe is actually one of the first things as a therapist you have to pay attention to. You have to make sure that if they're in imminent danger, it's actually one of the reasons you can break confidentiality as a therapist. And so... um, there you go. Just so you know, people ask me this all the time. Suicide rates by year have been about the same for the last few decades. People are like, are they higher, especially with how it's exposed on the internet? Um, it's, these are a, little, a few years out of date, but actually the rates are about the same. But in San Diego, someone dies from suicide every day. So it is vital that we're talking openly and honestly about these challenges. Why do you need to know these facts? both about suicide and about mental health because actually uh, the greatest percentage of people that are asked these questions are clergy. One quarter of those who ever sought, whoever sought treatment for the mental disorders did so from a clergy member. That's actually you guys. Now, what they're actually saying here is from a pastor, a paid pastor and a minister. Most people don't bring it up to their doctors. They don't go and see a therapist. So you might be the first person they've actually shared these thoughts with. So it's vital that as the first contact, that you keep them safe, that you give them a place where they can talk openly and honestly, and that you get them the help that they need in, again, their support network, all right? So you are sometimes the first people that they'll ever talk to. What are some of the warning signs with suicide? If they are talking and writing about it, that's one of the warning signs. If they're making comments about being hopeless and helpless and worthless, next one here. If they express things like um, that they have no reason to live, that they have no sense of purpose, and saying things like it would be better if I wasn't here and I want out, you need to pay attention to those very scary, they're very scary. I mean, I've, um, not, you know, I've dealt with it with members of my family I've dealt with it with very close members of my family. It's very scary when someone shares these things. Um, Increased alcohol, definitely. If you see that, then that's a definite warning sign. And then if there's dramatic mood changes. I, um, in my own family, my sister committed suicide at 51. And she was dying of cancer and um, was in great pain and just said she couldn't handle it anymore and took her life. Her husband found her and she hung herself. It was very, very very she's five children, very, very painful for the entire family, for all of us, all the siblings, um, for, majorly for her children. and now it's ten years out, and the pain is still very strong. It doesn't necessarily like just go away and that's one of the things that's important is, um, and this is on a future slide, but you, when people have gone through an incredible amount of grief and tragedy. You need to check with them that week later, that month later, like even if you're not the main person that's in there, it, a year, the year mark of something like that is incredibly painful. The whole first year is painful because it's the first year of experiencing things without that loved one. The first year is painful, but so is every special event after that. So it's vital that we don't forget people's pain, that we don't check in with them. How are you doing? Doing the draw, drawing out, the purposes, the things in their heart. What are some other warning signs? Yes, eating and sleeping. Why? Because it's associated with depression. Um, if, they, if they have dramatic changes in their behavior, if they withdraw from the fellowship dramatically, especially um, from social activities, and if they lose interest, again, that's all associated with depression. And, sorry, just skip to that one. And if they've written anything out where they're preparing for death. So this is especially true for those 65 and older. If they have ever attempted suicide before, if they are taking, if they're being super reckless, this would be a little bit more common for the younger um, generations because the recklessness is physically happening more. And then if they're, this is a big one, they'll say they feel trapped and they feel like they're burdening others. So that kind of language is vital to pay attention to. All right. People have a higher percentage of actually completing suicide if they have any certain types of events that are going on in their life that make them more at risk. For instance, again, if they've had somebody in their family, again, this is on your sheet on here as well. but if they have a family member that has committed suicide, they are four times more likely to complete their own suicide so it's so take those things seriously if there's someone in their family, it ups their risk level, it ups their danger level. talked about substance use um, uh So the problem with substance use is that you aren't, you don't have as much control literally of your prefrontal cortex. And so your ability to think through things like you would normally is greatly affected by substances. And then definitely, again, we've said that if someone's dealing with depression, they have a much higher risk factor for suicide. And then if they have any access to more lethal means. When I work with, I worked with a young woman, um, her thoughts of suicide were cutting, uh, she'd been cutting. But she also thought of uh, killing herself with a knife and she thought of throwing herself in front of cars. And so that's when, and she was at imminent risk because she had thought about it for that day. So I involved her parents and we put together a safety plan and um, where they did remove all of the sharp objects from the home, but they also upped their monitoring of her schedule as far as when she was traveling. So, finding out what exactly they are doing and what the specific thought is, is important. It is important to ask specific questions. Can you tell me what kind of thoughts you're having? I'm gonna walk you through that in a minute. Um, yeah, I'm gonna to have to move through here because I wanna show you the words. When you're, when you're with somebody, there's three, to, just, to, just to remember this one short little phrase, A, is for um, asking questions. Well, acknowledging, but asking questions. And then you wanna make sure that you're showing care and compassion. And then T is for tell. This is actually from Tim Summerlin. I really love this slide. It's very short and practical. Get the help that they need. So make sure that you're acknowledging the reality of what they're feeling. Make sure that you're expressing empathy and care and then make sure that you're getting them the help and support that they need, to the ACT. So let me give you some input on on how to have the conversations around suicide. Asking that simple question, are you thinking about suicide? I don't always ask it that bluntly. Um, I do say, have you thought about not wanting to be alive any longer. Have you thought about wanting to die? Have you thought about actually taking your life? So I don't always use the word suicide, actually, when I ask that question. But it is important that there, there you've got to show your own comfort around having that discussion. And yes, you can have these. These are input that I would give to a learning therapist, to a training therapist, but actually we can also. Uh, use, use these words, asking very specifically and directly. Because you're showing them that there's nothing to be ashamed about, people think these thoughts. I actually was with um, um, a bunch of parents and teens and I said, what's really important to know is that 10% of the people in here have actually had a suicidal thought within the last month. At least we know this from the research. So that means 10% of the people in this room, we need to learn to ask those questions. Even those of us who are strong and looking good and looking like we're, you know, uh, vibrant disciples. Think those thoughts, let alone those in your ministries. So we have to open up and make it normal to ask that question. When one of my kids was going through it, one of the things, and we just talked about this. We were on a hike just this week, and I said to him, you know, when I would ask you, are you having any yucky thoughts? This was when he was in middle school how was that for you? He goes, actually, it was really helpful because it let me know I could tell you if I was. And that's the way I used it because he was in middle school. Are you having any yucky thoughts? And, you know, we already knew what that phrase meant and we would talk about it and he would tell me if he was. And so now kids don't always tell, but the main thing is, is you want to give them a place where they can just by opening up the conversation. All right. Then asking specifically, do you have a plan? Finding out if someone has thought about how they would attempt suicide And then make sure that you have the means to remove any kind of lethal means that they're using. And then definitely, this is the big one that shows the care. Ask about their pain. Suicide often isn't about wanting to die, actually. It's about wanting to get rid of pain. So it's vital that you give the room. They want to live, but they're not sure how to. And so drawing out their pain goes a long way in dealing with the challenge. Okay, I'm going to go ahead and pass through some of these because I want to get to our last section. Okay, everybody close your eyes. I know it's making you struggle that I'm going through these slides and not doing them. But I I did it again. This is wrong on so many levels. Don't say these things and do say these other things. Okay, the reality is many people are experiencing grief around whether it's um, a loss of a loved one, whether it's grief. Around something that's challenging That's been happening in their life Or whether it's around a suicide And we're not really sure How to help people With their grief And we're not often sure How to express our own So there can be so many different factors And it's just vital that we understand Grief isn't just about the death of a loved one Now that is the number one reason That people experience grief Especially when it's someone that they're very close to It's especially challenging if it was a violent death Whatever that violent death was. Um, this is important. Uh, this is what we would call in the literature a disenfranchised loss or an ambiguous loss. So this is where there isn't a death. So this would be when someone has Alzheimer's and the person ha- is gone. There's a lot of grief associated with Alzheimer's and dementia. Also when people through various means because they've, they've lost their health or they've lost a job or a reputation Um, When I'm working with couples who have, where one of them has had an affair, there's a huge amount of grief around the life that they just lost because of a decision that was, yes, not good at all, but there's a lot of loss around how that impacts their lives. So these are what you would call disenfranchised losses that we don't talk about very much of the grief that comes along with them. So divorce being one, if someone, either they have a disability or their health gets to the point where they have a disability, or they have a child with a disability, and all their hopes and dreams for that child are affected. That can cause a lot of different challenges with grief. And definitely, if anybody has a background with abuse and trauma, Um, The grief can linger for years. We do have some programs now on um, grief recovery. Also Tim Summerlin has a whole um, in motion on grief recovery. We need to open up the dialogue that that grief is much bigger than just when someone you're close to dies. The losses and how they impact life can be huge. This is the major model for dealing with grief. This is uh, Kubler ross And her work is foundational to the working with grief, but it doesn't actually apply to everybody, although it's an amazing model, where she talks about the stages first of denial. We're usually pretty familiar with this, that grief goes through stages of denial, anger, bargaining, depression, acceptance. It's actually quite a bit more complicated than that, and actually they can be super circular, where somebody will be accepting, and then they'll feel anger, and then they'll feel depressed. It just jumps around. It's not this, this clear, linear path, and plus there's other challenges that can be very much interwoven in there. But this though, just knowing this one little piece can help you have a language around this. To just say to somebody, you know, I know that sometimes people go through different stages with grief and I'm wondering, where are things at you? Just asking that simple question can open up all kinds of discussions. To say that it's okay. Because as, as disciples, we tend to think you should be over it. You know, it, it happened. God's good. There's heaven. Um, all right. These are some of... Uh, this is really important. These are some of the common symptoms with grief. And now you can barely read it. <laughs> but they are numbness, shock, anger, anxiety, loneliness, fatigue, relief, yearning, tightness in the chest, shortness of breath, panic-like symptoms, lack of energy, confusion, lack of concentration, feeling the sense of their presence, sleep disturbance, appetite disturbances, dreams about the deceased, and social withdrawal. So when I give people that come into my office, I actually give them a list of these and these, which are the complicated grief symptoms. Most people think these are complicated. They think, I think I'm having a problem with grief. I think I'm having it for too long because I'm still picturing them. I'm still feeling anxious. I'm still yearning for them. I still get a tightness in the chest and I'm short of breath. And sometimes all they need to hear is, yeah, that's actually some of the common symptoms of grief. Because people are concerned. They're not sure, am I normal? Am I supposed to be feeling this? You know, a month out, months out, a year out. They are the common symptoms of grief. Um, what you would call complicated grief, which actually has a diagnosis in the DSM, well, somewhat, is feeling like life isn't worth with- living, difficulty focusing on anything but the loved one, an extreme avoidance of reminders, the numbness, which actually was on the previous list, feeling life holds no meaning, irritability, agitation, lack of trust, searching for the person and imagining them alive, so they're actually believing they see them. That's That's different than seeing them in dreams or missing them, thinking that you hear their voice. Again, if you're having any kind of delusions, that would hike it up to a more complicated grief. Extreme anger and bitterness, wishing that you had died as well, blaming yourself for their death. Abusive use of drugs and alcohol will be top on the list of complicated grief if they in, end up in, in what you would call compulsive behaviors and overworking. So what I do is I give between these three things here, the common symptoms and the other two, is I'll give this sheet to people, and I'll have them circle them, and it's usually pretty freeing to realize that often they aren't circling uh, these. And then they go, oh, okay, so I'm normal, and now what do I do? And then if you are actually experiencing some of these symptoms that are quite a bit more distressing, let's focus on those and how to work through those. Grief can be complicated. Um I love this model. So these are some potential responses to trauma. This would be of a loss. And you'll just notice here, it says adverse event right there in the middle. And then you've got somebody who's got a certain level of impairment there on the bottom. But then you've got resilience, and then you've got thriving. People are at many, many different levels of how they're dealing with their griefs. And it's vital to find out because then how you're gonna help them is gonna be different according to where they're at. For instance, um, one of the things that's super common is this idea that there's this closure, that grief has closure, and we should get to closure. That's honestly not what it is for most people. It's more of a how do I, Uh, the word thrive is kind of heavy, but how do I be resilient through it? There may not be closure. In fact, some of the losses have no closure, um, especially the disenfranchised and the ambiguous loss that I talked about. So, I'm gonna say, do these because they're important. Make sure that when someone's expressing their grief, be very careful with some of the phrases you can say. I understand what it's like for you. That sounds so understanding, but it dismisses their pain. That that it dismisses their experience. Don't feel bad. Don't cry. We have so many don'ts when it comes to grief. Um, you're strong. You'll get through this. We think we're being reassuring. You're strong. Everything will be okay. Yeah. I mean, for any of you who've had losses and somebody said that to you, I mean, your fist probably wanted to come out and punch them, right? So, you know, and we think we're being reassuring. Doesn't feel that. Ca- it's oh, that's a big one. It's God's will. And let me tell you, some of us here, I don't know if they're in this room, but some of us who are really trying to help people have said these things. Like, you know what, God will use it. God will work through it, we can do the God phrases. I think God would be sobbing with them. And I think we need to learn to sob with them. right? And we need people sobbing with us when we're going through it. Oh, this is a big one. It could be worse. At least you still have. This actually comes up with people that have um, lost a child, and they have other children and people have said well at least you still have right okay so I'm exposing all the things you you really feel horrible about you probably said them one day or you will never say them again now that you've read them but we've we've all said some pretty stupid things even in our desire to be reassuring and caring and we have to really figure out how to get rid of some of those all right what we do know about grief is that God feels it David felt it God feels it Jesus feels it We need to be okay with grief. Grief makes people anxious. And we need to actually recognize that it is a godly process going through grief. All right? There is resilience. You can go ahead and look at that slide later when you send me. I love these pictures. There is recovery. And there is what you would call reconfiguration, where there is growth through grief. Yes, there can be. It might not end up in closure, but it might end up in growth. All right so that is what i have for you today and we're now going to open it up so hopefully I'm not motion for you if you did, did doug did we pass out or who asked me about that i don't think we passed out pieces of the paper right to ask questions but if you've already written some down and you want to come hand them to me can you bring them up here and then I'm just going to take hands as well so and then we have microphones so uh, Ray and Joe are going to uh, both do questions and hand around. do we have microphones okay great wonderful all right so go ahead and I'm going to actually start off with um, some hands and then I'll go to some of the written down ones so go ahead and write them and put them up in the air so that Ray and Joe and the guys can catch them um, right there yes
3: My name is Lynn Sago, and I'm in the Mission Region. I've been in California for almost 11 years. I was in Florida for 20 before that, and I've struggled with depression Mm. probably my whole life. Mm. Um, I literally just came out of a seven-month depression a week ago. And everything you said here today is true. And I want to say that from somebody who's been there. Mm. And that book that the um, Rejoice Always, when I read that book, when it first came out, Mm. I believe it saved my life. Because 25 years ago, there was something wrong with me not just a mental health issue, but a spiritual one. Mm. And when you're in that spot, that only feeds the worthlessness that you're feeling, and the hope. Mm. It didn't give me hope. The fact that I wanted to go get help and go to a psychiatrist and a therapist, yeah. that was not encouraged. Mm. but I did anyways because of the book the Shapiros wrote Mm. read the book it's very easy Mm. to understand it's small it'll give you skills if ever so basic Mm -hmm. to help people to ask the questions that then you can get them the help on a different level because Mm. 99% of us aren't knowledgeable or able, Mm. but I raised a bipolar daughter, my ex-husband is bipolar schizophrenic, I've dealt with depression for most of my life, so I have maybe a little more experience life Mm. hands-on than the average person. Mm. But that doesn't help me when I'm in the midst of a seventh month bout of depression Mm. and my thoughts my mouth and my heart are connected
1: right thank you so much for sharing you know i really appreciate that number one saying please go read the book did you all hear that she's asking you to read the book she would like you to know her story right and she would like you to understand so that you can help others go read the book thank you for being so bold and answering um i'm going to go to one of these so keep your hands up i'm going to read these quickly when you have a question go ahead and Try to keep it you know, somewhat to a couple sentences. It's a little hard. I don't mean that at all. No, no, no. I don't mean that at all about what you just shared. Um, when we're counseling someone, how do we know which parts need therapy and which part is repentance? Oh, I know. Isn't that the question? Pray for discernment and get a lot of input. Um, pray for discernment and get a lot of input. And then pray for discernment and get a lot of input. Ask people who are already involved in those kinds of challenges what type of questions you should be asking, how to keep them safe, how to draw them out. Um, the main thing being, it's it's honestly hard to tell per person. It overlaps so closely. People still need to be obedient to the scriptures, right? So, but how do you figure that out when maybe they can't come to church on ed devotionals for a time period because of what they're being challenged by? And maybe you need to bring devotional to them for that time period. So... I think the main thing is is have really i'm not giving you a specific answer because i think it's really different per person but you can we've got people here you know we have incredible elders to ask how much should i expect of this individual when i was teaching the staff a while ago i said you know you guys have a lot of um, um, you know uh, compassion and empathy we need to make sure that we're helping all of our small group leaders have the same understanding and experience so go and ask those among you who are working in that and honestly you can send me a question anytime so I would pray as you're trying to figure Amen. out what's in That's right. okay a hand yes please
2: Hi, um, what are some of the Facebook responses we should do with, uh, with people that are right. uh, really showing Right
1: of, a yes. and things of that sort Yes, I actually sat with somebody and read her Facebook with her yesterday. Um, <laughs> yeah, so sometimes people will share a lot about what they're feeling um, in a public forum. there sometimes it's a cry for help. Um, I have a family member who does it quite a bit. <laughs> um, and then I have friends that have done that, and I think the main thing is a lot of times what people feel is that the only time they get a response from somebody is when they put it out on social media. So it can be a learning thing for us. Like, am I sending, hey, how are you? Just checking on you out of the blue. It's not not just when I hear a cry for help. Um, But it can be helpful to just say, hey, is there anything that you need from me right now or were you just needing to express that? What I actually tell people, um, well, this is when I'm doing couples work, is that when someone's expressing their pain, ask them what they need. Do you just need me to listen? Do you need me to put an arm around you? Do you need me to um, share with you anything specific that could be helpful with you? What do you need from me right now? Maybe you just need to know that I heard you and that I care. So I would ask when you see something like that, is there anything, and then always check how am I doing and in interacting with this person outside of the time when they're putting something out on social media. Okay. You did hand me a question. Thank you. How can I help a daughter understand and keep certain boundaries to a close friend who's contemplating suicide? This is a tough one, especially among the teens, because their own own mental health is challenged by some of the things they're hearing, right? And they can only handle so much. And so one of the, the things that I... Share with teens. I worked a lot with teens. Is that you do need to consider the fact that some of the things that they're saying um, are when you would break their confidentiality, and so uh, let them know that if you know if you're actually in danger, I am going to get help, and that it might it might really affect your relationship with them, and they might feel like you're no longer a safe place, but it's it's keeping them alive, and it's it's important. But the other pieces too is that um, if someone is like, they feel kind of like a rescuer, one of the biggest things that comes up is the idea of being that I'm the one person they can talk to and you know they, they want to rescue others. And um, so I would actually use some of the stuff that we've just talked about today about how they need a broader support network. If people are going to do better with their mental health, they need other people who know what's going on in their life. And so being that sole person, although it might feel like I'm the person for them. It's actually not beneficial for them long term, so educating teams with this information, and most of it, I think there's a few here, could be super beneficial. You know, sharing this with them. So using some of the things that we've talked about today.
0: Jennifer, do you yes. want to Mention anything about that that show 13 Reasons Why? It's coming yeah, season two. Yeah. So yeah, I did
1: mention it just a minute ago. So if uh, John, can you where are you, John? John Gore. You're the one that has that, right? That Sandy sent that to you? Roberts. Can... Roberts have it, yes. So maybe we can send that out church-wide um, to, to, to leaders, anyway, on the 13 Reasons Why. It's just a, um, it's a how to talk uh, with teenagers about 13 Reasons Why. So that would be a practical. Okay. Hand in the very back. I can't see you, but I can see your hand. Oh, sorry. Uh, I, let me get the microphone and then the hand back there, guys.
2: Hi, uh, my name is Tara, and I have a question. Um, I ha- well, my siblings uh, frequently come and talk to me, have issues, want to discuss things, and they're pretty heavy. And sometimes it's very, very, very abusive. I have one sister going through a major divorce. It's very volatile for kids. It's just horrific, Mm -hmm. the level of intensity. So I definitely try to listen. I try to be there, Mm -hmm. try to direct her to resources. But pretty much our conversation is she's abusing me almost every conversation. So I don't know. um, Some of it's anger. I'm looking past that, but some of it is so outrageous. I kind of know where's the boundary? Where do I... And then... She's not got other people, and if I try to direct her, I'm thinking, my goodness, if I cut it off. Right. I feel caught between a rock and a hard place. Right. If I pull away, I don't know what she'd do. Right,
1: the, the concern about if they might commit suicide. I'm um, just... Right, if yeah. they're in danger. Sure. Yeah. Well, you know, and this kind of actually goes to one of the questions asked earlier about boundaries, how to have healthy yeah. boundaries. It is vital... Um, to have a loving conversation about. If they become where they're attacking, to be able to go, I do wanna be helpful to you. However, when you start speaking like this, we can't continue the conversation. And then if they keep going, you say, look, I'm gonna go ahead and I'm gonna end this conversation and then let's talk again tomorrow. And it might cause disruption. So I do, actually one of the biggest things that I do with people is help them with, when they have family members, is help them with healthy boundaries, how to say, I love you. I am here for you. However, these kinds of things, when you start attacking me in these ways, that's not okay. Now, the concern being like, I've worked with a number of families here in the church about when they have a family member who's um, suicidal and they're afraid of uh, uh, cutting off in any way. So this would be like a suicidal teen or young adult who is also involved in drugs and alcohol and they're living in your home. And this is something that's I, I'm not going to tell you, how you whether you ought to keep your head, kid at home with you. However, um, how, what are you communicating? If you become that rescuer, if you become that person that always listens and doesn't say, I would love to talk to you, but if you're not willing to go get help, and we cannot continue having this conversation, or if, you cannot, if you're going to continue doing drugs, you may not be able to live here. Those are decisions that each family member has to take because... Together, Especially if you're a family, a married couple, you have to make these decisions together because sometimes that, the result can be quite dangerous and you don't want to end up holding it against each other. So with great input about where the boundaries are, so I actually take quite a bit of time when I work with people about how to have healthy boundaries because they are vital actually to the process of care. Um, again, that would be kind of like the tough love kind of idea that we, we do understand somewhat to, you know, to some extent, that um, we've had individuals come in the fellowship and they want a fellowship, and yet they're endangering the body. Where do we have you know, uh, healthy boundaries even within in the body? And so um, again, each situation's gonna be different, but it is actually beneficial a good chunk of the time for the individual dealing with those issues, when you have your own healthy boundaries. Yes. Okay.
0: Um, so the, the question I have is any advice with helping someone who, you know, maybe it would be good for them to go to therapy, but they're they're reluctant. Yeah. Um, you know, so uh, a particular case I know a brother, um, he's kind of hinted at abuse in the past I you know he's never he's never been open he's never you know talked to me about it so I don't really know any any details he's hinted at it um is, his wife is really wanting you know it's felt like yeah I really I, I think he really should um and I I don't even know to what extent she knows of, of of any kind of abuse in the past um he's he's been he's been very reluctant um you know he's he's even said, you know, I don't know, you know, I don't really know if it's useful to bring up, to, bring, to dig all this stuff up, and, um, you know, and one of the things we talked about was, and I don't know if this is a, is good or bad, but like, well, what, you know, he's even said, well, I don't even know, yeah, I could go, my wife wants me to go, I could go, um, well, I don't know what I'm going to say, and, mm-hmm. and we said, well, well, maybe you should just go and you know, they're professionals they know how to help you with it you know is, is that good
1: <laughs> all right well that's a really good question i think there's a couple different things um i actually when people tell me i don't even know if i want to go um, i tell them i think that's a perfectly good question will bringing up the past be helpful because even in the field of therapy there's a big question about whether bringing up the past is helpful there's different types of therapy that are, are insight oriented which means that you do work through the past stuff And there's other forms of therapy that don't even look at that stuff and work on how you're living today. And so I actually validate the fact that they have that concern. I think that's a perfectly valid concern about whether that... So I would always validate concerns. And the thing I do tell people, this comes up all the time, is, you know, because I'll see a family member and they'll say, I wish my spouse would come or I wish my kid would go something along those lines, or people come up to me and say, you know, I'd like my family member to consider going, and the biggest thing that I tell people is two things, actually. One is, um, hey, just go once, just go once, and check it out and see if that can be helpful to you. So sometimes just coming in the door is the hardest part. Just making the phone call, actually, to set up the appointment is the hard part. So just going once kind of helps with that. But the other thing that's helpful is that it is vital that people um, find a therapist they click with. So one of the challenges of why people don't like going to therapy is because they saw somebody before and it didn't, wasn't helpful and they, didn't, and they never really clicked but they kept going because they kept thinking it would get better. The number one factor for success in therapy is the connection with the therapist across all research. So it is. I tell people, you know what, try this one out, and if that doesn't click, try this one out. So helping them through the process of just trying it. Okay, you don't have to go for months and weeks, try once, so that's what I would recommend. Yes, uh, sorry, where's our microphones? So guys, ah, there we go. If you've got a microphone, do this so I can see it, because I can't quite tell, and then if your hand goes up and you don't have one, get the guys to bring one to you. Yeah. Hi, Jennifer.
2: Hey. My name is Tanja Knight, and I'm from the South Point region, and I have a question. First of all, I want to thank you so much for bringing this to us. This information is very valuable. Um, I heard you speak about um, what causes a lot of depression and anxiety um, and the other mental illnesses. However, do you think that um, it's it can't be hereditary or... What do you think about
1: that? Right, so again, I didn't get to touch on all of this, but this would be a question about the biological causes. Um, I have a whole slide on it, we just didn't get to it there. Um, So we definitely know from the literature that they would support saying that there are hereditary, genetic would be the word that's used, that that it's genetic. That just comes from percentages, Um, we haven't found a gene, for any of these. Um, uh, So is it hereditary, Or is it um, patterns that go through families? A little hard to tell. Um, They'll use the word genetic. So that's one factor. And then they'll they'll, um, talk about the chemical imbalances within the brain. And so uh, one thing to know is that we do know that there is serotonin, there is dopamine, there is norepinephrine, those chemicals in there. We actually don't know what the balance is. So the idea of a chemical imbalance is a really inappropriate phrase, and doctors actually use it all the time. We don't know what the balance should be, and we don't have any test to tell what the balance should be. You can't stick a needle in somebody's brain and suck it out and say, oh, you're low on serotonin, let's give you more. It doesn't actually work that way. And so it can be biologically based, And yet we're not quite sure, and that's why mental health medications are quite different than the rest of the medical field. With the medical field, you can suck out blood and you can see what the biological stuff is. Um, You know, if it's a blood disease or something like that, or if they've got an infection, you can't do that. And so uh, mental health medications are a bit of a shot in the dark. And I, yeah, I didn't get to get here at all. We have to have a new relationship around the biological part and around the idea of actually using Vedication because um, when you actually look at um, who is it, Uh, is it Nebuchadnezzar? So, whoever was supposed to die and then he prayed with his face to the wall, Hezekiah, Hezekiah, thank you very much. Um, Hezekiah prays and God gives him 15 more years and he doesn't go, Oh, yay, I'm going to run in the street and let somebody, you know, a camel run over me because God says I'm, you know, it actually says right after that that they used a poultice. Um, they, God said, use a poultice. And so even though God had promised him 15 more years, there was still an actual biological thing God told him to do. So there we don't yet know why certain mental health medications are helpful, and we don't know how long they're helpful, and we don't know if they're actually addressing the underlying biological piece. Um, that's all still majorly in research right now. However, people often feel an incredible amount of relief from. So this would be the biochemical process. When it comes to genetic backgrounds, again, that's on percentages. What I do with people is I do a genogram where I look at um, their three to four generations and I look at grandmas and grandpas and aunts and uncles and I figure out if they have a family pattern of these challenges and so whether it's actually genetic right or whether it's just passed down through families it will show up on a genogram like that and so that's actually um a super helpful piece for people to go oh well gosh yeah my family never expressed um, emotion and so it's no wonder that this is the challenge i'm having now because look at this generationally all the way through the years so I'm kind of giving you a non-answer in that it's still we're still learning about it. We're still learning about the brain. We're still learning about genetics. The reality is there's, there's absolute uh, chemical things that happen in the body when someone's depressed and when someone has anxiety. So.
0: Yes? Hi. My name is Gabriel Amazon from South Point, and I just wanted to share something real quick and ask a quick question. Yeah. I went through a divorce uh, about six years ago. Um, and I was suicidal, depressed. Um, the comment I want to make was to the coach. Um, they generally wanted to help me, but a mm. lot of the things they said were very damaging. Mm. They didn't make me share anymore.
1: Right.
0: Mm. And um, I'm a grief recovery
1: specialist. Oh, good. Oh, sorry.
0: Uh, so I teach grief recovery, and a lot of things that you shared I, I agree with. And, uh, yeah. I, I love the information that you're giving. My question is, is how do we distribute this information, not just tonight, because tonight's gonna end, right? right? right. And how hmm. do we get this to uh, somebody in the ministry sector that we can turn to? Uh, is there anything going on like that, that that we can look forward to in the future?
1: Um, how do we teach the rest of the regions, so re- your small right. groups, how do we get this information out? But so we can
0: duplicate you.
1: Right, right, and right, you know, right, right so in all honesty that's actually why we recorded the classes for john oaks they are an hour and a half long i think so you can chunk them in half but you can actually listen to them as a group or as uh, in discipling relationships the biggest thing i would say is buy rejoice always and study it together with the people in each other's lives that would be a really simple way to do it um, and then listening to those together. As far as, like, you literally don't necessarily have to duplicate. You can just go listen together. <laughs> um, and then also um, our Living Water Conference, the Shapiro's taught, and it's all in, we, all but one lesson. Ray, we need to have those back on the website. The Shapiro's classes from the Living Water Conference are top-notch. So we do have some listening resources as well, you know, that you can listen together with those in your ministries and learn. Yeah. Uh, Really quick question, Uh, what's your feeling on hypnotherapy? Oh, yeah. So um, there are a lot of different techniques out there, hypnotherapy, EMDR, um, that are um, around uh, the way that uh, stuff is processed. And the bottom line is um, I tell people, was it helpful to you? Great. Awesome. Go do it some more. Um, because I, when I first heard about EMDR, I was like, Oh my gosh! I can't tell you the number of people who've been helped by that's a it's a trauma therapy actually. Uh, hypnotherapy is has some similarities with it. Um, so I don't practice hypnotherapy. It's not something I'm interested in practicing. But I have many people in my group practice that actually use both EMDR, hypnotherapy, and a few other. Um, Specialties, because you actually have to get specialized training to use those. In fact, if you're seeing somebody and they don't have specialized training, that's not a great idea. You wanna have somebody who knows what they're doing. There are people that they take one class on EMDR and then they try to use it on their best friend and it's the worst thing. Don't ever, ever, no, I'm serious, that's actually happened. Here. (laughs) And so, don't do that. Um, Somebody needs to know what they're doing if they're gonna use those tools because with all of them, they bring up traumas. And you don't want to re-traumatize somebody and then leave them hanging. It's incredibly debilitating. So, um, yeah, there's a lot of different tools that people use. And if it's helpful and if it helps someone, the main thing I tell people is that um, if you have your own religious beliefs, um, use discernment on whether this is helping you also in your relationship with God. Talk with people that you trust. On Because I get asked this. I get calls from throughout the world, actually, from different um, evangelists and elders asking about the different ways that some of the therapists in their churches, some of the techniques that they're using, and every technique has the basis of it is like Freudian or something like that. That you know, But uh, sometimes the way it's used is not necessarily unbiblical. So, yeah, that's a non-answer again. I'm getting lots of non-answers. Okay, it's been wonderful being with y'all.